0: know the why human trafficking work is needed, to fight for the freedom of modern-day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field, so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 159. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, and I want to read you the description of a book. And it says, born into poverty and violence, Laura's early life was one of extreme vulnerability. She was prostituted for the first time at the age of nine and suffered unspeakable treatment from those who should have protected her. Early trauma led her to institutionalization soon after she started college, an incarceration she would have not survived, but for the courageous nurse who fought for her release. 50 years later with an advanced degree in psychology and a long successful career as a mental health professional, a leading educator and sought out public speaker Laura revisited the grounds of the Illinois State Mental Hospital where she was once kept in inhumane, degrading, and life-threatening circumstances. This profound and compelling memoir traces her life as a survivor of child abuse, sex trafficking, illegal pharmacological drug research, and institutional abuse. Laura's experiences illuminate and validate the power of love and the strength of the indomitable human spirit that lives within each of us. Laura is here today to talk about her life, her experiences, her survival, and her book. It's an honor to have you here. So, welcome, Laura.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor
0: to be here. It's just amazing just reading that little description of your life that you survived, but not only survived, but you thrived to become. A professional in psychology, to have a successful mental health career, to be an educator, to write a book and be a public speaker. its You really have a story to tell. Can you take mm-hmm. us back and sort of give us an idea without giving away all of the book? Because I'm kind of interested to read it myself. But just, you know, how did this start? How did you uh, become a victim of child abuse in the first place?
1: I have to start by telling you a little bit about my mother's history.
0: Mm-hmm. When
1: she was three, she lived in northern Wisconsin on a farm, and her father froze to death in a, in a blizzard. Mm-hmm. And her mother became catatonic, couldn't move, couldn't interact with her own children, couldn't bathe herself or feed herself.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it was during the Depression, the worst years of the Depression. And so the older sister had to walk into town and get a job, which left my grandmother and my mother and her other siblings, and my mother was three at the time, and there was a brand new baby, in the care of two um, young adolescent boys. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't hardly take care of themselves, let alone their siblings. So there was chaos. There was a lot of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect some of it was in seeking comfort.
0: Mm-hmm. And...
1: Um, What ended up happening is I think my mother's life, um, she literally stalled out at age three. She wasn't parented from three on. And my grandmother never, you know, she eventually got to the point where she could talk a bit and move, et cetera, but she never lived alone. She was never functional. And she couldn't even remember the name of her own children, let alone her grandchildren. So my mother literally stopped being parented. So I was born out of wedlock. Um, my aunts used to say that it could have been any Tom, Dick or Harry or Clinton, and they were pretty certain it was my uncle. Mm. Um, and so that was the start. My mother got her first pair of shoes by, um, climbing out of a window and having sex with a local farmhand, um, Mm. and got money for that. And I, and I believe in her life, the prostitution was, um, a way she was dealing with her own trauma. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then as you as you said, as you read earlier, I was trafficked. And of course, it wasn't called that in those days. It was called pro- prostituted um, by my mother the first time when I was nine. And I can remember um, her watch, sitting and watching it happen and was horrified. The man was there. She insisted on watching. She was sitting in a nearby chair and I realized in that moment she wasn't really there. Mm -hmm. She was staring off into space. I think my mother was highly dissociative Mm -hmm. and I think that that it was even the selling of me was somehow I believe a way to heal her own trauma to make sense of it, even though it sounded kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. So of course for a lot of years, um, in my younger life, I was eventually taken away from my mother by the courts and in and out of different placements. But there was a point where I knew that I had always loved my mother and still loved my mother. And it was when I met with my mom's oldest sister, the one who went into town and started working on the weekends or, and during the week to, and coming out to the farm only once or twice um, a week to bring food that I, um, she was willing to tell me everything and so that's where i learned about the history and at that point i was able to forgive my mother wow and um it really now what i know about trauma and have experienced myself and know from so many others i've worked with including local trafficking survivors i think often they're compelled and it's it's often deeply unconscious by their own trauma it's like trauma reenactment mm-hmm. i believe that my mother um prostituted herself because she felt powerful
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. it was the only way she knew how to feel powerful mm-hmm. wow. and there was something in the and I would watch her um when I was young she would take me with her and I'd often be in bars with her and often in the back seat of the car while she was having sex with someone she had picked up
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I remember um this feeling of um she was very aggressive and she was very, Um, she would get really excited in the dance of seduction. And I think that's where she found her power in the
0: only way she knew how. That's very interesting. And so how did you then move from that situation to become institutionalized? Well, I, I'd
1: been given two scholarships to go off to college. I was homeless, um, For the month before, a little over a month, probably a couple of months before I left for college, and wasn't prepared. Um, You know, I had some street sense, but I didn't have any daily living skills, and I'd been in a number of placements. And back then, this was pre-child protection protection years, so they didn't even have um, Mm -hmm. certified foster homes. They just kept putting me with people who I learned often take people kids for the wrong reason, and I think that still goes on today. So I showed up at school with two suitcases that were given to me by a doctor at the local um, county hospital because I worked there as a nursing assistant that summer. And I started being stalked by the respiratory therapist where I was working as a nursing assistant on the weekend. And he terrified me. He pulled me into room closets. He started showing up in the halls at school. He was 50-some years old. Oh, wow. And then he showed up at the bottom of the L stop. I was living in Chicago, going to school and um tried to pull me into his car and I don't know what would have happened he had a, a businessman coming down the steps not scared him away. So I quit my job and I went into a really funk, funky blue place, and the dorms were closing in several weeks. now I didn't have a job, I had no money, and I had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And so my old childhood default was to say, well, I could just take some pills and be over with it so I took a I think it was a handful of aspirin or a couple handfuls of aspirin and then I thought that was really stupid I don't want to die and I made myself throw up and I went and saw the dorm mother and she had me um said that she could help me find a job for the summer she was glad I told her but she wanted me to be checked out medically so she put me in a taxi I was sent across town to um an emergency room and next thing you know, they told me they were sending me across town to another hospital called Illinois State Psychiatric Institute, where I didn't know it at the time they were doing drug research. And I was put on a ward for young adults who had no family members. And I wouldn't take the drugs, so I was eventually committed to the worst state hospital in the system. And it had had it not been for Dr. Sydney Krampitz, she wasn't a doctor at the time, she was actually getting getting her master's degree in nursing. Um, I wouldn't have survived that system.
0: We're going to take a short break and tell you about an amazing conference that we host every year.
2: Over the past 19 years, the International Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference has welcomed thousands of attendees from all 50 states and from 47 countries. We are the largest and oldest academic conference on human trafficking in the world. Our 19th annual conference will be hosted virtually this year on September 21st through the 23rd. You will have the opportunity to learn from and collaborate with thousands of advocates, researchers, providers, and survivors from across the globe. This will be our largest conference to date with over 110 breakout sessions featuring 175 expert presenters speaking about various topics related to human trafficking and social justice issues. Make sure you are part of the conversation and don't miss out. Find out more and register today on our website, traffickingconference.com.
1: And I almost did die there.
0: Wow. And so how long did you stay in that system? 15 months. Sydney had, had worked at the
1: first hospital and was just furious about my commitment and vowed that she would do everything in her power to get me out. But at that point, from where she lived to the hospital was about a three and a half hour drive. And, you know, she's a graduate student, has three small children at home, and is a Lutheran minister's wife, and only available, you know, one day a week, usually Sundays. And she kept telling herself that I was a bright college student and I'd probably been released. And finally, after about eight or nine months, she said she just couldn't get me off her mind and heart, and she decided to call to make sure I had been released and was astounded that I was still there. And then she came week after week and after week and did everything she could to advocate to get me out, everything including threatening to have them sued.
0: Wow, the power of just one person that invests in yes. someone else's life. That changed the entire trajectory of your life. When you got out of the institution, what? where did you go from there?
1: I went went to a cousin's for a couple of months um, and because I had to be discharged to a legal relative. And so she was a brand-new bride with a brand-new baby, but she took me for a couple of months, and then I went back to school.
0: Why did you have to be discharged to a legal a family. I,
1: I have no idea. Sydney Krampus wanted to take me and they said, no, um, that it had to be a legal relative. I don't know the answer to that. I guess it supposedly it was law back in that those days.
0: Wow. And so you go to the relative's house and then where do you go from there? How do you get to college? I go back
1: to the same college I'd been going to. And because I'd been a, um, a patient in a state hospital, I was eligible for what's called DVR, Devo, Devo, Division of Vocational Rehabilitation.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: they, they, because now my scholarships were gone, but then they helped with school expenses, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I was able to get back into college. And the, the other thing that I, I'd like to pick up on, on what you said about the power of someone to change your life, that, that's woven throughout my whole story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had my first suicide attempt at age nine, and had it not been for a neighbor upstairs who was kind to me, the day she was moving away, she pulled me into her arms. I was sobbing and begging her not to move. I mean, before that, I felt like an alien. I didn't know why anyone could possibly want to live here because I didn't know any adults who liked kids or were decent to kids. Mm -hmm. And she pulled me into her arms as I'm sobbing, begging her not to leave. And just kept murmuring, I love you, I love you, you're a good girl. And I had not heard the word love, didn't know what that meant, but I felt it in my body. And it was like this sense of awe, and I felt like I had a spiritual epiphany. And I remember saying, that's why I was born, to learn how to love, learn how to give it and receive it. And that became a a guiding light from then on.
0: But up until age nine, you had never heard the word, didn't know anything about the concept. No. But in this moment, you felt that right. your world was bigger. The universe was purposeful. There was a purpose. Absolutely. And so throughout your life, you've had these people yes. sort of show yes. you grace.
1: That's absolutely. Absolutely. And often they'd show up in the darkest times. And, you know, I found when I work with other survivors um, or people who've been traumatized in different ways, trauma Eclipses the nervous system. It takes over. And so we're always hyper-vigilant, mm-hmm. you know, waiting for the next shoe to drop until we're healed. And um I had a spiritual teacher many years ago, a Native American woman named Dehani Yahu. And I had the great gift of living on her land for a month and being part of something called um women in transformation. And one day Dehani looked at me and she said, and we had to write an extensive essay about our life before we got admitted to this program and she said to me Laura I want you to look back in your life and do a timeline and find all the joy markers because you wouldn't have survived you wouldn't be on this planet had there not been some and so then I went back in history and I thought oh and that person and that person and that person Hmm. and I always recommend um, survivors do that exercise because it's so easy for the traumatized brain to just take over and it eclipses every other good part of our life.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's some wisdom there. I mean, that those are jewels. I mean, what, what you're doing is dropping jewels and I hope people are picking them up and putting them in their crown because these these are jewels through life. And so how what attracted you to clinical psychology and mental health?
1: Well, I originally was in education, and I worked with both um, children with emotional problems um, as well as with deaf-blind children. And I uh, I found that I worked the best with those that were the most troubled, and a boss noticed that. And she dared me to, to try going to graduate school that summer because we were off during the summer. I was working in a residential treatment program for deaf-blind children. And I went uh, just absolutely believing with all my heart that I wasn't smart enough to be in graduate school because I hadn't learned to read till the end of a third grade. And had it been not for the kindness of a substitute teacher, I might not have ever read because they'd given up on me. And um, so I. Anyhow, I became a voracious reader after that, and. So Marge, my supervisor, really pushed me to, to try gr- some graduate school courses that summer, and I never left. And I think I, th- I believed at that point that everything that had happened to me was about me, that there was something wrong with me, that those things had happened. And so I think I was intrigued about what I might learn about psychology. I didn't know that there were systemic fault lines and cracks in the system at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, but I believed that everything that happened was my fault.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and I thrived in graduate school, I ended up graduating with straight A's and um, loved what I did. I've always worked out of the box, I got trained how to work with children and families as well as, as with adults. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's how I got there. I think it was curiosity, trying to impart even though it wasn't fully conscious, solve this puzzle of myself. Mm-hmm. I had vowed when I was finally released from Elgin State Hospital that no matter what it took, I would not live my life with a leftover mental health diagnosis. None of them were accurate in the first place, but I I would not live my life that way. So determined to do everything I could. And I think education was a part of that. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think, uh, you know, a lot of us go to college and, in partly we go into these helping professionals to understand we have to make sense of
2: yes. our lives
0: and why this happened we have to learn about human behavior and we don't let it sit inside of us we go back and we help others and that's really what i see you doing and so what made you go back to the grounds of the mental hospital why why would you do that
1: it was intuition and i always listen to my intuition and I knew that I needed to go back. And I um I also knew that I needed, as I was writing the book, needed to do some research because I needed to know more. And um Sydney Krampitz and I were in touch by then, the woman who'd gotten me out, and we were talking and we were talking about every two weeks. And I said I decided to go back. And she says, Then I'm coming with you. Which was <laughs> wonderful, because I think I need I didn't know that I needed someone to go with me, but I really did. Mm. And um, so she went with me, and we went to um, the archival library in Springfield, Illinois. And I found a document this thick that to this day I haven't been able to read it straight through. But Sydney read it every single night, and they would talk a little bit about it. And it has everything from autopsy reports to um to the deaths that occurred there, because there had been an investigation because people who had families. um were like shocked when their loved one had died unexpectedly, and they had no no illness, nothing was wrong with them. And what I found is one of the primary drugs they were giving everyone was Thorazine, which they were giving me as well, which was an antipsychotic, even though I wasn't psychotic. Mm. Um, And Thorazine causes huge constipation and eventually bowel obstructions. So many people had died there of sepsis from bowel ruptures.
0: Oh wow.
1: And I have been t- as as well um, as other other things, and and I've been told that it's miraculous that I survived. Mm-hmm. And, and I think um, going back there h- helped me to resolve a number of things, mm-hmm. including I wanted to visit the grave of someone who I knew who had committed suicide while they were there.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you, you had built a relationship with this person that committed yes. suicide? Eventually, she was at the first
1: hospital I was at. Her name was Mary. And um, she was a brilliant concert pianist who had a seizure disorder. So she had had a suicide attempt, and that's what got her into the same first hospital I was in. And then, I don't know, maybe a month or weeks later, she was also committed to Elgin, and she was in the same unit I was in for a while. But she, I can't even tell you, her, um, the way she played the piano, and they had one on the ward at ISPE, was angelic. And um, people would be upset in the ward, and she'd just go to the piano and start playing, and it would, everybody would settle. And I think she did that to settle herself. But she, in most days, they didn't have much they could do for people who had seizures. And so she ended up, She had, they moved her from the ward I was in to a medical ward, um, which is the most awful building I had ever walked into. It had probably 150 Adult sized cribs lined up. You could hardly walk between them with people who were non functional and over drugged. And um, she actually told me and showed me the pills that she had saved. And I went, I got to a grounds pass and got to see her one other time. And the nurse had told me she'd committed suicide. And so she was buried at the cemetery in Elgin because no family claimed her. And so I wanted to honor her by going back to the cemetery.
0: Wow. So this hospital is experimenting with people with very minor medical issues. I mean, you took a handful of, a couple of handfuls of aspirin or whatever. Well, this is not, these are not mental health conditions. Did anybody bring any lawsuits against um, this facility? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. And, and Illinois, Illinois State Psychiatric
1: Institute, there's actually a, um, a whole book written about it they are, um that, that talks about them. They, they did not hide their research.
0: Wow. Is that uh, facility closed now? Yes, it is. It's closed now.
1: It, um, Elgin, the second hospital, the state hospital I was in is still open, but they only have a population of 300 um, now, and it's a forensic hospital. And I actually re- returned once more. That's not in the book because that was actually about a month ago. I was coming back from um, Indianapolis, and a, a friend was driving with me, and we both had to use the rest area. And we got off the freeway, and there's a sign, Elgin State Hospital. And so the the man who um, took Sydney and I around to the hospital and took us to the um, cemetery, um, I called him to see if he was available, and he said, let's meet for lunch. And so we met. And had a wonderful lunch together. And then I went back through the hospital, and, and they told me about how it's changed even since I had been there about seven years ago with Sydney. And his wife had worked there as well.
0: Wow. I mean, these are crimes against humanity. I can't believe that you survived. And your friend Sydney has been traveling with you through these years. So, how many years have you all been friends?
1: Well, she's known me since I was 18. And uh, we lost track of each other for a while when cell phones came into fashion and people stopped having home telephone numbers. But while I was writing the book early on, I knew I had to to find her again. And I was able to find her. I remembered her daughter's names and was able to find her through Facebook and through her daughters.
0: So and at least decades that, you've been friends. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. In fact, she came when I went to graduate school, she came to my graduation.
0: Wow, what a wonderful person. And so a little bit ago, you said you rely on your intuition. How did you even learn to begin to rely on yourself, given all your experiences?
1: You know, I I believe that, um, I don't know how to explain it. I've always, like as a kid, there were things spiritually related that happened to me. Mm -hmm. Um, One day I wandered, I I ran wild. I was like a feral kid. My mom could care less if I was home and often told me to get out of her sight. She couldn't stand to look at me. So I wandered. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a bedtime. I didn't have a time I had to come in. Mm -hmm. I didn't get called in from play like other kids at dark. So Mm -hmm. I wandered a lot. And one Saturday I wandered into the local Catholic church and I heard singing. And it was in Latin, so I didn't know what they were saying, but I was so drawn to the music. I went and sat in the stairwell because they were in the choir above. Um, And I I felt like God was raining down on me. Mm -hmm. And after that, I um, visited all the churches in town when they had choir practice. And that created a respite. Um, In about second grade, I started doing this thing, and it was like an experiment. I um And I would send my energy out and try to figure out whether my mom had a mo- a man there or whether she was alone or whether she was drunk or sober, which would help determine whether I should go straight home or just go wander.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I got really good at it. I don't know how. I just got good at it. And I was nine times out of ten right.
0: Wow. You became very self-reliant.
1: Right. And I, I think I became a pretty mystical kid. And I was drawn to the saints. I remember reading all the lives of the saints. Um, and, and I'd had a um, signature moment when I was three years old. And I think that's what probably shaped some of that. And my uncle Clinton, my mom was living with him. They were living as husband and wife. And he shot himself in front of my mother and I. He had come back oh from World God. War II a pretty damaged human being. And my mother beat beat the crap out of me and left me alone. And there was a raging blizzard starting. And I eventually got out of the bed. She'd thrown me in and went downstairs looking for food. And his body had been removed because my aunt had come looking for us because we were supposed to be there for dinner and hadn't shown up. And I tried to get out the front door and a huge drift of snow came in. So now I could neither get out nor could I close the door. And I'm sitting on the floor sobbing with the snow drifting in and starting to shiver. And I had what I believe with all my heart and tr- trust as true, uh, a visitation of an ethereal presence. Wow. And I remember the sound of the voice, which told me to go up, back upstairs on my bottom and get back in my bed and cover up and that she'd be taking care of me. And um, I didn't know, of course, as a three year old. And it wasn't until my aunt told me I actually had a dislocated arm and broken collarbone. So it makes perfect sense why she told me to go up the stairs backwards. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was in pain, but I, and something was wrong with my left arm, but I had no idea
0: what it was. And this all took place in a matter of hours. He gets shot, you get beaten. Wow. I was
1: I would say it was hours later because his body was removed that day, mm-hmm. and I and it might have even been the next day that I got out of, out of the crib. I don't know. That's but, but I but I, I, there's something that connects me to all that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we all use different languages for that. You know, and I use different words for, or different words for that myself. Sometimes God, sometimes mystery, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes mm-hmm. all that is but I but I trust that aspect of us and I think that that's what has survived the I think it's the essence of who we each are mm-hmm. and I think love is why we're all here mm-hmm. and I I believe that I wrote the book as an act of love yeah. and as a way to speak for those who who've not had a voice
0: I think it's all about being attracted to love and light and and yes. so tell us a little bit about the book the book
1: the book starts um with me being committed to Elgin and then it goes backwards in time. So it leaves people with the, with the question, um, what, what happened to her? Did she ever get out? And mm-hmm. so then I trace my mother's life as well as the trajectory of my childhood and young adulthood. But the whole, I would say second part of the book is about the ability to transcend and fully heal from trauma to mm-hmm. literally to, to transform. And, um, Another reason I wrote the book is I think often people who are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder believe that it's a life sentence, that they can never overcome it or get over it. And I want to tell you, I'm a poster child um, to the fact that that's not true, that that we can overcome it if we if we make a solid commitment to do so. We can work through all the trauma and we can be free, fully free and live a thriving, luminous life as I do.
0: Now, how did you work through trauma and how do you go about life today?
1: I saw a therapist for many years who, um, back in those years, they took you back into the trauma. They did what's called ab ab reactions. We now know that, um, unless that's absolutely necessary for some reason, um, it's like having a flashback. Um that that is not the best way to do trauma therapy because it re-traumatizes the brain
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, but that's what we knew and that's what we did back then i mean we were just beginning to understand professionally what post-traumatic stress disorder is um so i did a lot of therapy i also intuitively knew that i needed to learn to meditate and needed a spiritual practice and tahani oahu the the cherokee elder that i told you about was my first teacher And so I always had that parallel experience. And I think that's essential. And part of my mission is to really um, empower and illuminate the fact to healthcare professionals that um, trauma creates an existential crisis. And those are the kind of crises in which we ask the big questions. What's the purpose of life? Will I ever be the same? Why did this happen to me? And that can't be solved psychologically. It has to be met and solved spiritually as well as psychologically. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a a coming together of spirituality and psychotherapy. And I think we're in a time where there's a lot more openness to that. And we're all spiritual beings. You know, what we choose to practice or how we choose to practice or To learn in community can often be about religion, which are containers, but we are all spiritual in nature. And um, I've continued to have a spiritual teacher. Uh, I've had many over the years, and that's changed as as I've grown and deepened. Um, I also knew intuitively that I needed to do body work long before the book called The Body Keeps the Score was ever written Mm -hmm. and found an incredible body worker. This quiet Jewish woman who was doing amazing energy work um, many, many years ago. and she worked with me and helped helped with some of that. I still do body work. Um,
0: I think appreciating and respecting the various ways of knowing from thousands of years uh, across cultures. sometimes we think just Western medicine and Western ways of knowing or psychology and those those are the ways that you heal people right. Right. and we don't often give respect to those other ways of knowing and absolutely. i think those are critical critical mistakes that absolutely. we make absolutely absolutely and, you know there is a religion spirituality humanitarianism whatever it is that connects you to things outside of you bigger than you absolutely. that is so important to healing
1: absolutely it's it's critical it's yeah crit- and I I, I um, did a talk to a group of psychiatrists recently, and I and I said you've got to start letting the essence of the person into the room by even asking the questions. What makes your heart sing? You know, what gives you joy?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What shifts your mood when you're having a bad day? Yes. And and I was I was great. I was so grateful. It was well received. And they said, well, we need a coach. When can you help us?
0: Oh, awesome. Phenomenal,
1: yes. So that's part of my mission as well. Uh, the other thing is, I believe that, you know, practice is like practicing gra- gratitude, because that shifts our hormones, mm-hmm. is really important. And yes. it, I was working with a, a client once who was very, very depressed. I'm pretty hopeless. And I gave her the assignment. All she had to do is write like, one thing she was grateful for every evening. Mm-hmm. And suddenly she has a whole notebook and you could watch every day her her attitude shift. Yeah. I did that recently with my 10-year-old granddaughter who was having a bad day. And I said, we're going to play the gratitude game. And a friend was with me. So we just went around in a circle and kept naming all the things we were grateful for. And she got out of her bad mood.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, sure. and what's the name of your book? Tell everybody what the name of the book is. It's called Darkness
1: Was My Candle, An Odyssey of Survival and Grace.
0: Awesome. And then what by Laura DeVore. And where okay. can people pick up the book?
1: And any Almost any place you can order a book. Um, they can order books for you, but it's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Um, and uh, let's see, where else? Uh, Target, I've been told. So just about any place you can. You can get a book or order a book.
0: Awesome. And I think reading your story just reminds us to practice gratitude for our lives. That's right. So I think that is a good introduction to how to show grace and practice gratitude yourself. It's it's just a, an amazing story. And you're an amazing human. And mm. just to look at you, uh, the feeling, the presence of you is just having someone that is very calm, a very calm, welcoming presence. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing your book with the world. And I hope that many people read it. And I'm definitely one that uh, can't wait to read it. So thank you so much, uh, Laura DeVore. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience? You know, we're trying to do our best to help people that have been traumatized and victimized and, Various ways, one of them is trafficking, but um, victimization through violence and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, traumatized. Any recommendations or advice that you'd like to give the audience who are trying to help people that have perhaps Mm -hmm. experienced some of what you've experienced?
1: One of the things I'd like to recommend is people go to the website, which is com, And it actually has an interview between Sydney Krampitz and I, which was last, last November. And it was two weeks before she passed away, and so I'm I'm very grateful for that. Um, the The other thing is, know that know with all your heart, believe in yourself. That if you got through the unspeakable, you can get through healing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and,
1: and I have resources on a whole list of resources on the website of amazing people who can help, mm-hmm. and 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 they're all around the country many of them you know work with people remotely and also know that what happened to you perhaps happened for a purpose mm-hmm. so that you can bring out your magnificence
0: mm-hmm.
1: and your love you're you're alive for a reason yeah and yeah. begin to feed that aspect of you and begin to feed your spiritual nature And know that we're all connected and all human beings suffer in one way or another. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the the most angry, rageful people, my mother was also a rageaholic, under that she she suffered so much. Mm -hmm. When she died, I felt profound grief, not because of losing her, because she couldn't relate. She Mm -hmm. wasn't a person who could relate to me. There was no connection. She'd never bonded with me. But I had profound grief because here was a woman who had never fully lived a life.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So I I really want people to believe in themselves and believe that they can recover. And I want those who work with, with survivors to know that sometimes you can't walk an entire journey with people. But by the nature of your presence, you can change the course of your of their life.
0: Absolutely. And it, Sydney walked alongside you, served a grand purpose. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear that she passed. Yeah. But um,
1: the Dale, the woman who held me in her arms when I was a seven year old, mm-hmm. I wrote a short story about her years ago. And then I found her and I got to be with her when she passed away.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. And
1: I saw her several weeks before and I started to cry. And I said, I'm so sorry it took me so long to find you, Dale. We've missed so much time together. She'd never forgotten me, and I'd never forgotten her. And mm-hmm. she said, don't be sorry, because you did find me. Now I'm not afraid to die, because I know I did one good thing in my life.
0: Oh, Just you, awesome.
1: you're like a ripple that goes out. Mm-hmm. And then I got to be with her when she died.
0: And to be able to evolve as a human being, to return, to open your heart to understand why, someone may have been cold to you or or victimized you or been distant from you like your mother being able to understand her circumstances and experiences and having some empathy for what she was able to give and what she was not able to give and that's somebody that is an evolved human for sure Um, well thank you so much um and It's just been a pleasure talking to you. And I hope people do buy the book because I think there's a lot in it that they can take away in their own lives, uh, as well as make them sensitive to people who've been victimized and to those people who victimize. It helps us to try to understand where they came from and what they had to offer and what they didn't have to offer. So thank you so much once again, Laura, and I hope you continue on this journey um, and bringing love and light into other people's lives. So thank you so much. That was Laura DeVore and her amazing story that she chronicled in her book, Darkness Was My Candle, An Odyssey of Survival and Grace. And you can go to her website to find out all kinds of great information that she has there for you. If you're a survivor, or for you as an advocate to learn more and that's at lauradevor.com l o r a and devore is spelled d e v is in victor o r e.com so much to talk about <laughs> that just to, so much to unpack i can't even speak on all of it because we'll be here for days but i do want to say that one of my takeaways from this episode is really the power of advocacy. You know, we're not in someone's life, as Laura said, we may not walk the whole journey with someone, but don't mistake the power of change, the power of your presence in someone's life, even if it's for a brief moment, even if it's like her neighbor that was able to hug her and say, you are good. I love you. For her to hear you are good and someone loves you, you never know if someone has never heard that before or rarely heard it or didn't hear it from someone who is not looking to get anything from somebody else or someone like Sydney, who was in her life for a very long time, lost touch, and then got into her life. Again, you never know if those small moments make a big difference or if those extended moments make a big difference. It's sort of like when we talk about, when people talk about the tree being a symbol of engagement in our life, you know, people that are roots of your tree. Well, those people, those roots will be in your life for a very long time, maybe a lifetime. But there are also branches on the tree and branches are strong and they're there for a time and branches break away. And that's what happens to a tree. And that's a natural progression of the life of that tree. And then there are leaves on the tree and the leaves are there for a season. And so that's what people say. Who are the leaves in your life? And who are the roots and who are the branches in each one of those people in your life, whether they're there for a moment, like a leaf, or whether they're there for a lifetime, like a root, can make a tremendous impact on somebody's life. I think the other thing that she talked about was spirituality and belief in something bigger than yourself outside of yourself and maybe it's a religion like she talked about religious containers um that give you structure or maybe it's outside of any of those religious containers and it's a spiritual it's a spirituality it's something that you believe in that's larger and powerful having something outside yourself is critical to healing She talked about it from a professional stance and also from somebody that had personal experience that using the tools and the methods of psychology are critical to healing and also having a spiritual understanding, a mindfulness uh, about your experience because the trauma, the crisis is going to lead to those existential questions why am I here what is life about why did I have to experience that and when you ask those type of questions it's difficult for psychology or any type of uh, scholarly knowledge to respond to those type of questions and whether your religion or your spirituality, is contained within a religion um, or whether it is a more free-flowing spiritual experience doesn't matter as long as you're connected in a way that gives you that type of internal healing and that helps you answer those larger questions my spirituality is is going into the woods and hiking and seeing the trees and the grass and the water. um, To me, that's my church. That's my spirituality. That's where I connect. And that's where I answer those questions, those larger questions that need to be answered for me. And wow, can you just imagine for a moment someone's life as a child that had never heard Until much later, someone say, I love you, you're good, you're a good person. And then to have taken two handfuls of aspirin and end up for over a year in an institution where you are heavily medicated, dangerously medicated, and to have to have an advocate who couldn't get you off their mind, by the way, to come back and to fight for you. It's so true. There are moments in your life where people have stepped in to help you. And so being an advocate for someone else, stepping in for someone else, even though it's for a moment or for a long period of time, can be critical, life-altering, life-changing for someone else. Being an advocate is so critically important. And if that's inside of you and you can't shake it and it whispers to you all day long, then that is the path that you should travel to fight for somebody else. If that's right for you, then no teacher, no preacher. No parent, no friend, no wise person can decide what's right for you. Just listen to that voice inside you that says, I need to do this. I need to speak up right now on this person's behalf. I need to say this to this person in this moment. I need to circle back because I need to find out how this person's doing. I need to stand up. I need to step up. I need to speak up. That's what a good advocate does. And if I could say, if the spirit moves you, then do that for somebody else. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something. Let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.